Okay, there are uh, outlines, if you haven't gotten one, over there on the chair where they normally would be. Um, just by kind of a quick review a little bit for where we were last week. Um, last week, uh, Nick started in uh, Isaiah 42, uh, verse 18, and went to 43, verse 7. And in there, we basically saw the failure of God's chosen people, a people that God set apart, all right, to be his messengers to the world. And Isaiah is clear. They were given spiritual ears, but they were willfully deaf, all right? Likewise, they were given spiritual eyes, but again, they were willfully blind. Uh, the choice not to hear the words of God and not to acknowledge the works of God, which were plain, plainly shown to them, right? that willfulness has, was a choice, and that choice was disobedience, and that choice came with consequences. All right? So we saw part of that, and we're going to see things that are, you know, prophesied to happen uh, in the near future for them. Okay. Now there were, and and those consequences that we're referring to are captivity. Right. Now, when I was looking at some of this, the commentators will talk about uh, uh, that captivity as one of two things. Basically, one is the first captivity of Israel when they're in Egypt. All right. They're not yet a nation completely, just a conglomeration of people. Uh, And there, though, their eyes were open to see God's deliverance. They were witnesses to the events of the plagues and, and whatnot, how God was working. And their ears were open to hear the uh, words that God spoke to them through Moses. The second view that people have, some of the commentators have when they look at this and are talking about a captivity, they're looking at the captivity that's going to happen roughly a hundred years or so after Isaiah writes this, the captivity that's going to happen in Babylon. And so one of these views, you know, when you look at this, one of these is looking back at God's deliverance of his people, all right? And one of them, as we'll see hopefully tonight, is looking forward to God's deliverance of his people, okay? Now, Nick sees in Isaiah here in these writings, he talks about the captivity in Babylon, and it seems fairly clear to me that, that that's the case because what we see is Isaiah, he addresses in chapter 42, verses 24 and 25 and beyond. He talks about uh, the Lord saying that he's given them up to looters and plunderers because of their disobedience, their willful blindness, if you will. And in their disobedience... They refused to understand. They didn't take God's word to heart. So the question Nick posed uh, last week also was, why would God redeem them again? Why? Right? It's over and over and over. Why again? Okay? And Isaiah basically answers that question with some simple but profound statements about God, about his character, his love for Israel, and why he acts. And in 
chapter 43, the first seven verses we finished up with last week, we see descriptions like this where it says, the Lord created you. He formed you. He redeemed you in the past. You're called by his name. You're his. No matter where you are, no matter what you face, you're his. Then the Lord speaks to Isaiah and says, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And the Lord continues. He says, you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. And he goes on some more. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, he says he's going to gather them up. So no one chosen by God, called by his name, is going to be lost, is going to be forgotten, going to be ignored. They're all going to be delivered and saved. There's nothing that God won't do to redeem his people in his time and in his way. So tonight we're going to look at just six verses as we continue on here. We're going to look at chapter uh, 43, verses 8 through 13, the next six verses. And in them, what we're going to see is God call his people to essentially testify of his faithfulness in being their redeemer, their savior. We'll look at that some more in a minute. First, let's pray and see what the Lord has for us tonight. Father, as we know, your word is rich. And your word just describes in in so many different ways who you are and how you work and what your actions are. And so, Father, I pray as we look into your word tonight that some of those will become clearer to us. And, Father, I pray that uh, the, the words that are spoken will be words that will be glorifying and edifying to you. Uh, anything that I've looked at or prepared or whatnot that, that isn't fitting for what you want us to learn tonight, Father, I just pray that those words will be lost, that they'll be gone, that they won't be spoken. So, Father, I pray that you would uh, let your Spirit meet with us. And again, as always, Father, let your Spirit give us a better and a clearer understanding of who you are and how desperately we need you. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're going to read the, uh, those six verses, and then uh, we'll dig into it a little bit and see what we have. Uh, Isaiah 43, starting uh, verse 8. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together, and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this? And show us the former things. Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right. And let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord. And besides me, there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there were no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am he. Therefore, uh, there is none who can deliver 
from my hand I work and who can turn it back okay so in in these verses basically what we see is something similar to what we saw in Isaiah 41 uh, around verse 21 29 that, that kind of range all right and it's it's a, a scenario where things are set up almost like a courtroom setting okay we, we see the same kind of things if you will when Paul poses questions in Romans 6 and 7 right the same kind of thing all right uh, and so what we have here is God is going to assemble this courtroom He's going to call his witnesses, and he's going to call the nations, and they're going to call their witnesses. And they're going to address the basic question of who can, either you or your gods, who can declare something that they're going to do that they actually did? All right, who, who can do that? All right, witness to that. Tell me about it. Okay. The fundamental basis, I think, for that question is, are the nation's gods, those gods, little g's, those gods that they worship, the idols that they have, are they sovereign? Can they do what they claim? Or is God sovereign? That's what we're trying to resolve here. So we're going to look at how this courtroom is kind of set up. Verses 8 and 9 basically give us this, this kind of introduction. But we'll see that the courtroom in there, we'll see it consists basically of two groups of people. All right? God's witnesses and the witnesses from the nations, all the nations of the earth. Right? And the nations are going to be looking for someone to testify that their God has declared something to be, all right, and he actually did it. That's that's what they're gonna. That's what they're gonna declare. That's how this is being set up, right? And God calls His witnesses first in verse eight, where it says, "Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes; who are deaf, yet have ears." Okay, these people have been given eyes to see, but as we already know, we're talking about Judah now, talking about Israel. Uh, they've been given eyes to see, but we know that they refuse to see, to acknowledge what they've seen. And they've been given ears to hear, but they refuse to listen to the prophets and the teacher that, teachers that the Lord has sent to them. When, when I was reading through this, it kind of struck me as how crazy this seems. And I, I don't want you jumping up here and beating on me until I say that Scripture's not crazy. I know it's not crazy, right? But this scenario seems a little bit strange. Just hear me out for a minute. Imagine you're involved in a simple car crash. And the cops are coming by to try and figure out what happened. They're trying to sort through this mess, find out what happened. All right? And they come up to you and they say, uh, who, who, who saw what went on here? All right? And you look over. And you see this guy with a white and red cane and a service dog sitting on a bench waiting for the bus. All right? Probably not a good choice to be an eyewitness to what happened. Okay? Likewise, when a cop says, uh, what, what kind of conversations happened? Who, who, who heard what people were talking about or anything else? 
all right? You're not going to go pick the other guy that you see over there that's talking to his friend in American Sign Language. But that seems to be exactly what God's doing. He's picking the blind and the deaf to be witnesses of his actions and of his words. It just seemed, there wouldn't have been my first choice. But of course, God never gives me the first choice. So anyhow, those same people, the, the folks from Israel, now we're talking specifically Judah, all right? But those same people are the people that Jeremiah describes as foolish and senseless. They're going to be the witnesses for God. Jeremiah says they're foolish and senseless. Jeremiah 5, 21 through 23 says, Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? I placed the sand as the boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and go away. Those are the people that God's calling to be his witnesses about who he is. Okay. Now, nations of the earth are also called together, instructed to bring their witnesses. All right. Who's going to testify again that this God said he would do this and it actually happened? Right. Um, and so we see them, this getting all organized in verse 9. Verse 9 says, All the nations gather together, and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this, and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say it is true. Now, the world's filled with false witnesses. That's pretty obvious, I think, to most all of us, all right? Folks that are willing to say anything that they think needs to be said, right? True or not, truth is irrelevant in those cases. You see it all the time. No matter what the situation is, the truth is going to get twisted or blatantly ignored. Let me give you an example. News camera pans the crowd at the funeral of someone recently murdered. A tearful family member is interviewed and describes the individual by saying they did not deserve this. He was a virtual saint. The perfect son, brother, husband. Someone who would light up the room when he came in. You've heard all those phrases. You hear them all the time. Okay. Then you read the actual account in a newspaper or see it on a news feed. And what you see is an account of a gangland slaying of a rival gangbanger with previous arrests for possessing and selling fentanyl, domestic abuse, drug trafficking, assault with deadly weapon, and the list goes on and on and on. Right? He was hardly the saint he was claimed to be that was testified to by a family member. Happens all the time. False witness, if you will. The world 
depraved mankind has no problem in testifying that the truth is a lie or that a lie is the truth. Apparently no problem with that. All right? That should not be the case with God's chosen people. Israel, especially, was given the law, the Ten Commandments. And the ninth one says what? Shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Yet the Pharisees and the Sadducees, during the time of Christ, sought out and even encouraged some to bear false witness against Christ. They weren't looking for a faithful witness to his work and teaching, but they wanted somebody to make up something, a lie, if you will, about those works and those teachings. Matthew uh, 26, 59 through 68, that's on your sheet, identifies what was happening at uh, the mock trial that was going on. Now, the, starting in verse 59. Now, the chief priests... And the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? He's addressing Christ at this point. Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. Some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Okay. Intentionally looking for a false witness. Again, these are the people, okay, the people of Judah, God's chosen people, that he's calling to be his witness. All right? The world has no trouble finding a false witness, all right? And being a false witness was obvious, all right, in the case we just saw. So how's this going to shape up? Well, the stage apparently set, all right, and the testimony is about ready to begin, the nations are all assembled along with God's chosen people. God's already declared who he is, the creator of all things, the redeemer of Israel, their savior. We've already seen that. He's already made that declaration. So who's going to stand up and announce to the nations, who from Judah is going to stand up and announce to the nations that Yahweh is the only true God, that Yahweh is the only one who can save? Or... Is one of the witnesses of the nations willing to stand up and announce that their God is really God and that their God can save and that their God is sovereign over everything? Anyone? Anyone? Movie reference for you. 
Um, the witnesses for the nations are silent. I mean, not, not a word uttered, but they're absolutely silent. Silent. Uh, no one responds to God, not even with a lie, as easy as that would have been, not even with a lie. And I think the reason for that is because God has commanded them that what you say must be the truth. Remember it said, let them bring their witness to prove them right and let them hear and say it is true. So in God's command, you have to speak the truth. They've got absolutely nothing to say. Nothing at all about their gods. The same silence, if you will, that I think we saw back in chapter 41 where God described the futility of the idols and concluded with these words, said, Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. All right, verse 24. So that was the truth. That was what the nations would not stand up and testify to. All right? It was not what was being addressed. They had nothing, absolutely nothing to say. What about Israel? It's, it's their turn, the men from Judah. God reminds them who they are. He says, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. The idea, Israel, you've been chosen by the Lord to be his servant. You've been given spiritual eyes and ears to know and understand and to believe who the Lord is, the Holy One of Israel, the Great I Am. You are the Lord's witnesses. What say you in this courtroom setting? What do you have to say? And unlike the nations who could not testify because they had to speak the truth, Israel is unwilling to testify and thus also remains silent. Do not say a word. But the Lord's not going to be silenced. He's not going to be silenced about who he is, even though Israel will remain willfully silent. So God's going to make a declaration here and provide a reminder. The nations can't speak. All right, and Israel's unwilling to speak. So God's going to remind Israel and make a declaration to the nations who he is. And we see part of that at the end of verse 10. It says, Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. And we've got to remember here, the scripture never really, did, to my knowledge, all right, Scripture never really uh, does anything where it tries to explain the existence of God, why, why God exists, how God came to be. All right? Scripture assumes, basically. I mean, if, if you think about it, 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 should be, it should be something that doesn't have to be said, right? who God is when God began. All right. and, and Scripture doesn't address that. The Scripture assumes that mankind not only knows already that God exists, but also has a basic 
grasp or a basic understanding of who he is. Right? Paul made that clear when he uh, was describing unbelieving mankind in Romans 1, 19-23, where he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they were without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So scripture doesn't go down the path of trying to say, well, this is how you can prove that God exists. Or this is, this is how you can you know, prove this about God. Scripture basically says God's already revealed all that to you. You should already know that there is a God, and you should already know the things that he's done. All right? Those have all been revealed to you. So scripture doesn't begin with a proof of God's existence, but rather begins with what? A declaration of his works. All right? You already know who he is. You know what he's capable of. Right? So we're going to start scripture here with a declaration of his works. All right? In the beginning, God created right, the heavens and the earth. So throughout scripture, the knowledge that God, Yahweh, exists is basically treated as normal and natural that all human beings should know. The entire created universe declares and proclaims the glorious works of God. But apparently that's not enough for mankind. Distortions, aberrations, if you will, of that knowledge drive mankind through a perceived need for a better and truer God to create one of their own making conceived of in their deprived minds, all right, depraved as they are, these gods, with little g, all right, the idols of men's hearts, God says did not exist before him, nor were they formed by him, and there will never be a time when their existence will be tolerated. Okay? So, in clear and certain words, God says that not only is he the most high God, but there are no other gods besides him. There are no, you've heard talking about this before, there are no junior gods, there are no little God helpers, there's no second class gods, all right? There were no gods formed before the Lord, there were no gods formed after him, and he is the only true sovereign God. And Israel... And all the people of the earth need to know that, need to be shown that. All right? Israel should have been able to testify to that, but they remain silent. So God's going to begin his own testimony here. Uh, he's identified who he is, testifying on his own behalf, declaring what he has done and continues to do. You see this start to form up a little bit in verses 11 and 12. Uh, Verse 11 starts as, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. 
I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. So God reiterates once again who he is to Israel. All right. He's their deliverer. He delivered them from Egyptian slavery. There's also an encouragement to the future captives in Babylon. Remember, this is going to happen roughly 100 years or so after these words were written. All right. And those captives, all right, can take heart and encouragement from the fact that God delivered Israel. Israel from Egypt, God can deliver them from Babylon. So there is encouragement there for them. And they need to know that there's only one God who can save, there's only one God who can deliver, and that God is their God, Yahweh, the only true God. So to make his point that he is sovereign, God gives Israel maybe a more recent reminder when I was reading through this, these things all kind of started to click together. And I think it forms a, a, a beautiful picture here uh, for the Babylonian uh, captives to come. Um, God's going to give them a picture that should be fresh in their mind. Uh, the miraculous deliverance from Egypt was something that Israel was constantly reminded of. You see that in Scripture. They're always reminded about the Exodus and how God delivered. It was something that they were very familiar with. But it happened over a thousand years before Isaiah wrote what he's writing now. So maybe a more recent event will serve to stir the Israelites to be witnesses for the Lord. Something that God declares, something that God does, something that God proclaims. So how about something that happened during the lives of Hezekiah and Isaiah? That's pretty contemporary to what we're looking at here. Something that the current generation will vividly have impressed on their minds and will impress on the minds of their children. Something that will be a powerful reminder of the Lord's faithfulness to his children in their deliverance, in saving them especially some of those children who will be adults during the Babylonian captivity. So what might that example be? And how does it tie into these couple of verses that we're looking at? Well, if you jump to 2 Kings 18, 1 through 8, it records the, the early years of King Hezekiah as his reign. And it starts off and it says, In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, the king of Judah, began his reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars, and cut down the Asherah. He broke into pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called the the Hushtan. He, He trusted in the Lord 
the God of Israel, so that there were there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord, he did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. Now, you read this and you would think right away, well, Hezekiah was a really, you know, never made a mistake. Well, we already know from what we've seen the last few weeks, Hezekiah was not perfect. You see the same thing, men on Friday mornings have seen the same thing with David, all right? David was a man after God's own heart, but David made some grievous errors, all right? David sinned grievously, right? Hezekiah was not always in a place where his heart was right and his mind was focused on the Lord. And we'll see that, some of that in a minute. So in those early years, when Hezekiah is reigning, remember it probably took several years for this to happen. He starts when he's 25. He only rules for, uh, what was it, 29 years. In those first few years, uh, what we see is he destroys basically all the idols and the idol worship that's going on in Judah. He even breaks up, tears down the, uh, the serpent that Moses built uh, in the wilderness because people had used that as something they would worship. It was an idol for them at that point in time. So he basically, all right, destroys idol worship in Judah. All right? And so what we see here is when we were looking at the verses for us, uh, God's saying, this example I'm going to give you is related to when there was no strange God among you. Okay? When you were not worshiping idols. Hezekiah basically made idol worship outlawed, if you will. Okay? So this kind of says, well, could have been this time. What else do we see? So move ahead about 10 years, roughly, and we see uh, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, remember him, and his army. They're already at the point where they're surrounding Jerusalem. Uh, we saw that a few weeks back when we looked at chapters 36 and 37. And Assyria, in this march and during that time frame, Assyria is a ruthless, brutal, unstoppable advancing army. They take what they want, how they want it, no mercy. So the future of Judah looks pretty bleak at this point. And you remember, this is when Hezekiah makes some mistakes, right? He fruitlessly looked to what? Political and military alliances with, with different, different folks. He even paid a tribute to Sennacherib to no avail, right? And so now... Jerusalem surrounded, and Sennacherib sends his spokesman, his ambassador, his Rabshakeh, or Rabshakeh, however you want to say that. Um, so he, he sends him, and his purpose, his role, is to basically taunt and intimidate 
Hezekiah's representatives that were out to meet him uh, into surrendering. That, that's his role. Uh, so those representatives and the soldiers, some of Jews, uh, Jewish soldiers that are on the walls of Jerusalem, all right, they all remain silent. They don't answer any of the charges. They don't make any comments. And they were told to do so, not say a word. They were told to not say a word by Hezekiah. Okay, so they come back and they give the report concerning what the Rabshakeh said. And Hezekiah is basically undone. He recognizes the foolishness of his, of his actions. He repents. He's in sackcloth and ashes. And he goes to the temple and cries out to the Lord. All right. Something that he should have done first, not last. All right. But he goes to the temple and he cries out to the Lord. And Isaiah sends word to Hezekiah, partly recorded for us in uh, chapter 37, verses 5 and 7. And so, verse 5 starts, says, When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord. This is a declaration now. God's saying, Thus says the Lord. I'm declaring this. Right? Thus says the Lord. Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. God makes that declaration. Okay. Situation seems to grow more dire. All right. But Hezekiah remains faithful at this point. And God, through Isaiah, makes another declaration here in uh, Isaiah 37, verses 33 and 35. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mount against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. So God makes another declaration, not just that Sennacherib is going to go home and get murdered, all right, but he's not even going to, nor are his troops going to all right, make any advance against any further advance against Jerusalem. And God's clear. He's going to defend Jerusalem. All right? He's going to save it for his sake, and he's the only one who can. Now, you know God powerfully and swiftly delivers. We saw that a few weeks back. In the case of Judah, um, I, I think that the main point here, I think, is in case Judah forgot how powerful God's deliverance was from Egypt, all right, with the plagues and the drowning of the Egyptian army, maybe they haven't forgotten yet how God delivered Jerusalem from Assyria and how he swiftly and powerfully destroyed the Assyrian army. Okay, maybe they haven't forgotten that yet. Maybe that's still impressed deeply into their minds. Maybe it's something they will continue to tell their children 
and their children will remember during the exile in Babylon. Okay, But what we see is God does move quickly. Uh, chapter 37, verse 36 again says, And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people rose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. So God delivered on his declaration that he would protect and save Jerusalem. Okay, What about his declaration that Sennacherib would be go home right, and die by the sword? Verses 37 and 38 that followed what we just read. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nishroch, his god, Adramalek and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword. God declares, God makes it happen. God declares, God makes it happen. Okay? And so the Lord testifies to Israel, the nations, the future remnant in Babylon, and for generations to come. He declared the fall of Sennacherib and the Assyrian army. Isaiah proclaimed it. He wrote it down. Right? And he said he did so so that you would know that I am the only one who can save and do so for my sake and for my glory. He says, I am God and you are my witnesses. Okay? God will not be silenced. So there's, there's a lot here for us to, to take heart and be encouraged with. All right. I, I think in, in what we just looked at, how those things tie together, is it, it's easy, I think, for us at times when we're told something about history, all right, something that would have been very dramatic at the time, but it's a thousand years ago. All right, and we have a tendency to, it, it gets watered down and we're not as sensitive to it maybe as we should be, even though we're fully aware, we, we fully know, just like Judah fully knew about the deliverance and the exodus, all right, it was a long time ago. But this, this is right now. This is something that, you know, God said he's going to do it. God did it very dramatic and powerful way, all right, and it left a significant impression, I'm sure, all right? And that would be a fresh example of God's saving and delivering that would be encouraging to the Babylonian exiles, okay? So the Lord wants us in Judah to know what he declares he does. His actions can't be thwarted or overturned by anyone or their gods, and those whom he saves can't be plucked from his hand. So we should be encouraged. Verse 13 says, in, in chapter 43, verse 13 says, And henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? I, I like the King James translation of the phrases that are used. Instead of henceforth, the King James uh, uh, says, yea, 
before the day was, not henceforth, but before the day was, I am he. I like it, that phrasing better, because for me, henceforth often has this thought of from this time forward, as opposed to, you know, forever, but from this time forward. And, And that's not the point here. The Lord's not saying that from this time forward, from this moment that I'm talking to you, all right, I'm going to be your deliverer. That's, that's not what he's saying. The idea really is, before the light of the first dawn, right, I was God. I'm God now. I'll continue to be God. I'll continue to be your deliverer. I'll continue to be your Savior. That's who I am. I am He. For Judah, looking at God's deliverance in that distant past, like I said, or in this more contemporary deliverance from Assyria, they are absolutely reminded that these events are not isolated. They demonstrate God's character that goes beyond his saving work on behalf of his people. He existed before time itself, before there was even a day God was. His attributes, his strength, his power, his faithfulness is infinitely greater than anyone or any God that anyone would claim that's out there, he can rightly say, there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. All right? Declaration of his sovereignty. When God does something, no one can change it. Okay? These words that were given to Isaiah are going to be an encouragement, not just to the future captives in Babylon a hundred years or so from that point, but for us as well, right? To know that we're not forsaken by the Lord, that his promises to us in years past, right, are going to be fulfilled. God chose them, we're talking about Judah, God chose them as he's chosen us to be witnesses to the nations about who he is and what he's done. God has in the past and continues today to declare who he is and how he fiercely protects and saves his people. And we can't, we must never, ever forget that. Spurgeon made a comment, and I I think I put it on your sheet, but Spurgeon made a comment that's basically the idea that don't think that everything that God did, all the powerful things that God did, were reserved only for those in ancient times. He still works today, right? Spurgeon's comment was, ought we not to look upon our own history as being at least as full of God as the lives of any of the saints who have gone before? We do our Lord an injustice when we suppose that he wrought all his mighty acts and showed himself strong for those in the early time, but doth not perform wonders or lay bare his arm for the saints who are upon the earth. With that, just take heart, be encouraged, because the Lord's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay, so I'm going to try and summarize a little bit about what we've been talking about. We've already seen that no matter where Israel was, 
all right, whether they were in Egypt or Syria, Babylon, Persia, Palestine, wherever they were, they were always surrounded by people worshiping other gods, little g's, right? They needed to be reminded of who God is and who they are. And that's the picture that we saw here. This reminder that God is who he is. He does what he says he'll do. All right, he is sovereign over all things. So God addressing all the nations of the world with Israel. Israel, as we saw, who is blind yet has eyes, deaf yet has ears. The challenge is the same as we've seen before. Whose idol can declare anything? Whose idol can do anything? All right? Who can show us the former things right, done by an idol? Right? Who are the witnesses to what they've done? Who can say it's true? And no one ever responds. Okay. Then God declared to Israel that his witnesses and his servant, he's chosen them for this purpose. He's given them the faith to believe, knowledge and understanding of who he is. And they've experienced his deliverance. They've witnessed the fulfillment of his promises. They can attest to who he is, the great I am. All right? But yet, even with all that, in this situation, they remained silent. To make sure that there's no confusion, God tells everybody who he is. All right? There's no other gods beside him. He is the Savior of Judah. Um, when Judah was faithful, when they had no gods, right, because of Hezekiah's work, uh, when there were no gods there, God said he declared and he saved and he proclaimed. During the time of Hezekiah, he declared, this is what I'm going to do to, you know, to Assyria and Sennacherib. He declared, he saved, he saved Jerusalem because of the declaration that he made, he saved Jerusalem, said, you are precious in my sight, right? And it was proclaimed. Isaiah wrote it down. It was proclaimed for us. I think these verses in this links God's fulfillment of prophecy to his character. God's acts all reflect his personality, his glory, his deity, all of his attributes. Everything God does reflects who he is. Now, that can cause a problem for some people uh, in their daily life because it's easy for them to accept that God is good and loving when what happens to us is pleasant, is nice. It's easy to say, yeah, God is, God is nice. But it's hard for us to recognize God in our suffering. All right? You have to be focused. You have to count on the promises that God's already made. All right? In Psalm 25, 10, David says, All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his commandments and his testimonies. All right? To do that, you have to be intimately involved with the Lord. In order to recognize his love, faithfulness, all right, in the midst of hardships, you have to have that relationship. That's what will sustain us, 
knowing that God is absolutely sovereign, powerful, fiercely defending and protective of his chosen people. Babylonian exiles were going to need that encouragement. And we need that encouragement as well. Okay, comments, questions, be easy. Yeah? I was just thinking about the, when they hear these things and all, he's the only one that can declare and make it happen, of course. And I was just having to be thinking about the crazy stuff out there, you know, like in the health of the world. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I know. First, I'm thinking of it. I just happened to read it on Facebook today. And I know who this woman is. She's actually a pastor in the Assemblies of God. And <clears throat> nice enough lady and all that. But I, you know, she, she was talking about that she's declaring her healing. And it's a terrible lie problem that she's had for years. <laughs> and I thought, are you now? You know? It's mm-hmm. like. I'm God, essentially, is what's behind that. Hmm. Well, I'll make the declaration if you send the money. <laughs> no, she's, she's not it not wasn't one of those. Okay. No, it's not. She's not remotely like that. She's actually a God of the yeah. But this idea that sometimes prevails in the kind of positive confession type of thinking uh, is really blasphemous when you look yeah. at it. It assumes you know that God... Wants you to be well all the time and uh, happy and all the rest of it. And I just thought this is really a blasphemous statement, though she would couch it in, I'm trusting in God. But I thought, you don't know what his plan is in, in regard to that or the outcome. And it just, it's heartbreaking, really. Yeah. Well, I, I think. To what we were looking at, it goes back to the idea that when, when we deviate in, intentionally, but when we deviate from viewing God as who He is, then our very nature says, "Well, I, I, I need a God, but I want my God to be like this." Or, to your extreme, I want that God to be me. Okay. And all of that is this whole thing of saying, how depraved can you be? I mean, it's one thing to say, you know, I've, I've reached the point of, of depths of whatever that I now have carved this little snake and I'm going to worship that every morning, right? As opposed to the depravity that it takes to say, I am God and you need to worship me every morning, right? And, and, and I mean, it's just that, that road that's filled I mentioned, it's just, it hits home with me, particularly because I've suffered through cancer, and God did heal me, but I know for certain that that was bound to happen. I didn't... You didn't place the demand on God to heal me. Yeah, I didn't declare, you're going to heal me or something like that, or, you know, I'm, I'm going to hang to that outcome no matter what, because that's the attitude with uh, godly folks too with, within that community, that you just outlast the misery and if you outlast it enough it'll happen when you want it. But at least with me, what I 
I knew that God certainly could, and I had a sense he was going to. But I didn't know the outcome for certain. And, and the fallacy, too, of thinking that God wants everyone to be oh, yeah. healthy. Okay? Well, you, you look at, at Christ's ministry, right? He, he's off at the well, right? He sing, everybody there has a problem. They all want to jump into the bubbling waters and be healed, right? That, that situation is going on. He, he doesn't go by and heal everybody. He picks one guy that was his from the beginning, right? And he heals him and says, you follow me. Right? So, you know, when we make these broad statements that God is only love, he's not just, he's only love, or God wants everybody to be healed, or God wants everybody to be saved so there'll be nobody in hell, right? We make, we jump to those broad things. They can't ever be, from my perspective, you can't ever support those from Scripture, right? It's just not there, right? God didn't declare that everyone's going to be healthy. All right, and therefore make it be. All right? No, your life's going to be difficult. The world's going to hate you. Life's not going to be easy. But you're mine, and you will be preserved to the end. Anything else? Anybody else? Oh, I thought there was a raised hand there. Okay. All right, let's close in a word of prayer. Unless you want to close for us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for these words from Isaiah that have been passed down through the ages. Father, the reminder there in these words, I see that, Father, we can come to you with what we deem as acceptable worship of you, but, Father, it is not what you command. Father, Hezekiah broke down the high places that were built by the peoples so they didn't have to go back to Jerusalem to to worship, to offer sacrifices, yet that's not what you commanded. He destroyed the serpent's pole of Moses, for though that was prominent in the history of of the nation, your people, Father, it was not a thing to be worshipped. And Father, how often we will deem our worship acceptable to you. Father, but it is void of your truth, void of your command. It's, It's idols that we have made in our own heart. So Father, I pray just as these words were appropriate in this type of courtroom drama as they were appropriate for the people of that age. Father, they are as as fresh for us in this day and age. Father, I pray that our worship of you would be as your word commands. We worship you in spirit and in truth. We worship you by your word. We worship you by through your son our Savior and Lord who took on our flesh that he might reconcile us with you. Father, I thank you for that gift and for the 
salvation of our souls, Father, which can never be overturned. You keep us in the palm of your hand, and there's nothing that can snatch us out. So, Father, whatever may befall us in this life, blessing or weakness, Father, it is all for your glory. So, Father, may these words cause us just to press in ever more intimately and closer with you. For our good and for your glory. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.